Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. I'm your NBN host, Lavinia Stan, a professor of political science at St. Francis Xavier University in Canada. I am talking today with uh, Dr. Jan Selling, a professor of history and head of the Department of uh, Critical Romani Studies at Södertorn University in Stockholm, Sweden. Welcome to New Books Network, Jan. Thank you so much, Lavinia. Thank you for accepting this interview about your recent book, Romani Liberation, a Northern Perspective on Emancipatory Struggles and Progress, which was published with the Central Uni- uh, European University Press in 2022. Before we turn to the Romani Liberation, could you tell us uh, uh, and our listeners a bit about your academic journey, please? Okay, um, well, uh, let me start like this. Um, as I, um, I was a young student, I went to Berlin in uh, 1992. And that was a mind-blowing experience to me. Uh, I was amazed about all the culture, politics and history in that city. And then uh, after almost 15 years of studying German historical memory and uh, also living a decade in Berlin, where history and memory is everywhere and where history is also so barbaric and traumatic and politicized, I needed a break. So I moved back to Sweden and I finished my PhD in history at Lund University. So, and what was my break? Well, I, in a way, it was, it was my chill out as a historian. I did oral history about archipelago fishermen and women in the new environment in Sweden, where I was now living. So again, it was my physical surrounding which shaped my scope of writing at that time. I wrote two books about fish, and then I felt ready again. Uh, luckily, 
I was then recruited by Uppsala University to build up the field of anti-gypsyism studies in Sweden, which was non-existent at the time. And, well, apparently I did a good job. And um, perhaps there was also a political uh, momentum for bringing anti-gypsyism on the table. Anyhow, I was then again headhunted into something new to me. This time it was by the Central Council of German Sinti and Roma in Heidelberg, Germany. And they invited me to a large European project with the ambitious uh, goal to build counter-narratives as tools for decolonizing Romani studies. Which I must say... This field of Romani studies, it is still today extremely dominated by exotifying and essentialist perspectives, uh, what we call gypsy lorism. So what we did in this uh, big project was to conduct uh, empirical research in many areas and geographic settings. We were a large team of more than 20 scholars. And we built a multifaceted knowledge platform, which is accessible on the internet as romarchive.eu. This was very much a Roma-run project, and I felt humbled to be part of it. Um, this gave me confidence to start mapping and um, uh, discuss uh, Roma political perspectives and Roma agency in history, because I never wanted to be that white European male who pretends to know Roma better than themselves, to quote Roma professor uh, Ian Hancock. I am a white European male, but uh, I have to be self-critical about my role. So that's why I, for years, had felt that my place was simply to analyze the anti-gypsyism or major society. And again, going deep into the dark side for years, that gets on my stomach. So suddenly, through the Rome Archive project, I, for the first time, had the possibility to reflect philosophy of history with Roma academics. Of course, I had already many contacts with the Swedish Roma community and also Roma students in Sweden, but here it was top academic level. I realized that it's not just about my stomach, but uh, that there is something fundamentally wrong and inaccurate when the history of a people is written solely through the lens of victimization portraying as victims. That is one-sided and also a form of othering, a way of producing hopelessness. Also, the main narratives on Roma history have rarely produced biographies of actual persons and personalities, nor have they told the story about uh, uh, Roma agency, Roma, shaping their, uh, their, their fate, their, their way through history. So to put it short, I wanted now, with this Romani liberation, to write an accessible, comprehensive book on Roma history, which gives hope. Secondly, I wanted to, as much as possible, to have Romani voices and perspectives represented. So this is my story, how I ended up in this project of Romani liberation. Uh, thank you. This is this is a fascinating uh, um, uh, life story, if you think about it. Yeah, you are the first uh, Swede uh, who um, 
is invited to build up this uh, new field in uh, at Uppsala University and you are you are uh, so passionate about it that uh, you are carrying the good work in other universities including including now uh, at uh, Sudecton University where where you are teaching now let me raise a very basic question who are the roma well uh, the I think the most neutral and simple answer to this is to say that Roma is an umbrella term for many different groups and communities who all have historical links to the Romani language group and who identify with the Romani cultural heritage. Finito. Uh-huh. Um, uh, having grown uh, grown up in uh, Romania, I remember that uh, the uh, Roma in that country um, include uh, a lot of uh, groups. Uh, some of them uh, are uh, defining themselves uh, by their occupation. Some of them are defining themselves uh, in other by other. Uh, but, but it's a very pluralistic and very diverse uh, group of people. Yes, so, um, and I uh, just for uh, for our listeners and uh, for people like me who don't uh, necessarily know uh, uh, that much about uh, the Roma community in uh, in Nord, Nord, Nordic countries, uh, including Sweden. How how big is the Roma community in Sweden? Uh, in the in the thousands, in the hundreds. How big is in uh, Nordic uh, countries? Well, we we have uh, only estimates, of course, because there is officially no registration of this. But uh, uh, the the most accurate uh, um, uh, estimations lie around uh, maybe hundred thousand, one hundred thousand Roma, representing many different groups. We have like twenty seven uh, dialects uh, in in Sweden, and uh, yeah, I will get back to that maybe in that uh, later. Okay. The book has been published as part of the Critical Romani Studies series. Could you tell us, uh, our listeners, what is this uh, series all about? What does Critical Romani Studies mean? You mentioned a little bit the difference with uh, uh, Gypsy Lore, but could you expand on this idea? Mm. Well, this uh, book series—it's uh, uh, the aim is to 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 bring uh, together a new uh, sort of a new strand in in in, in scholarship which uh, represents uh, this what we call uh, um, Romani studies and uh, and uh, we are uh, uh, some are Romani uh, scholars and some are not Romani scholars but we are in critical Romani studies so and if I just mention the the, the titles of the uh, other ones uh, you get an impression what's the, the thing uh, so besides my book which is called Romani liberation as we said um, there's another book uh, by Katerina Dunayeva called constructing identities over time and the third book is called Mobilizing Romani Ethnicity by Anna Mirga Krzyzelnika. So it is about uh, <clears throat> uh, it is about uh, liberation, uh, identity, critically reflecting uh, uh, Roma ethnicity, identity, belonging. Yeah, and <clears throat> we may 
and as for what is uh, critical Romani studies, uh, and, and um, well, there has been just as uh, in, in in other fields, there was uh, the talk about the linguistic turn in the field of Romani studies. We have since maybe a decade, there is to the talk about the critical turn. And this word critical, it is referring to critical theory, meaning that academic knowledge is not just um, <clears throat> entertainment or uh, confirming uh, 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 circumstances in society, but it's something which contributes to define and critically analyze the power relationships in society. And, and this is, I mean, in the case of Classic and Romani studies, uh, uh, or as some still call it, uh, gypsy studies or gypsyology. Um, uh, well, some Germans even call it Ziganologie, which is a very ugly word. Um, this has been locked into an Orientalist paradigm, which essentializes perspectives on Roma as exotic and antisocial outsiders. So the scholars have sort of defined the people and locked them into this identity uh, and, uh, and, and this image. So the critical Romani studies aims at questioning this, in fact, quite racist approach and search for the cracks in this anti-Gypsist hegemony. And uh, this field of critical Romani studies has a strong focus on opening up knowledge production and higher education for Roma. Well said. Let's now turn to your recent book on Romani liberation and start by reminding our listeners why we are talking about liberation and why your study provides a northern perspective on it. Mm. Well, uh, there are two main dimensions in my book, uh, uh, Liberation and Emancipation. Uh, so the story of Romani emancipation has to do with achieving the same formal rights as everybody else in society. But liberation goes further. And I, in my introduction, relate to the French philosopher Henri Lefebvre, who claimed that emancipation is a necessary first step on the way to, to liberation. Because liberation, that includes also the existential dimension where uh, humans can realize their full uh, uh, potential. Uh, so, and this concept of liberation is also a central component of the pedagogical traditions linked to Paulo Freire, which was influential in, in, in South America in the 60s and 70s mainly uh, uh, to, to, to combat injustice in society through scholarship. Um, and according to Paulo Freire, awareness rising is, is the first step in any group struggle to achieve social justice. Uh, so, uh, and my geographical focus, uh, the Nordic perspective, my focus is on the countries I have the most relationship to. It's as simple as that. Um, and also have access to the languages, which is important for uh, research, I think. Um, and in the Rome archive, this uh, knowledge platform I mentioned before, 
I curated the research on the Nordic countries and on Germany and on Austria. So I had uh, strong insights in that. Um, and this starting point has, of course, influenced what questions I ask and the way I compose the international narrative. So that's the Nordic perspective, I would say. But but would you uh, say that uh, Romani liberation in any way uh, has specific attributes in northern European countries as opposed to some other countries on the continent? Do you think that Romani liberation entails more struggle or more effort in um, uh, Eastern Europe, for example, than in um, in um, Nordic Scandinavian countries? Is there anything is, um, in which the geography, the geographical focus of your of, a, of your analysis kind of uh, points to a particular specificity of this liberation to the northern to the northern area of the continent. Uh, well, that's a, that's a, a, a tricky question, of course, but uh, uh, well, obviously one one uh, main perspective i'm a historian uh, and i am uh, specialized in uh, historical memory and uh, what i call historical justice uh, and this is uh, again uh, also referring to the approach by a german philosopher theodor v adorno confronting the past means that we have to uh, change the society now otherwise it's just entertainment uh, and this, uh, the uh, the way this uh, historical justice uh, approach has uh, worked uh, in the uh, in the Nordics is has something in common, and uh, uh, structurally also something in common actually with the Germany Austria, even though Germany Austria is so strongly linked to the Holocaust, whereas in in the Scandinavian context we are talking about forced sterilizations, uh, forced assimilations within. Mm, at least in the Swedish case, uh, throughout democratic society. So, so this is something where um, uh, which is something here in common, and uh, I think it's uh, it's. Uh, I hope that it sheds light also on other geographic contexts. Uh, uh, and I do discuss, of course, uh, some East European countries and France and England and so forth, and. Uh, uh, but the, the, of course, the contexts are very uh, different. To put it short, I would say that anti-Gypsyism is um, surprisingly homogenous throughout the time since the Middle Ages up to today, and geographically through over uh, uh, at least the across Western... the continent, yes. across the continent. Yes, yes. but the. the um, uh, I mean, talking about uh, uh, Roma culture, ethnicities, this is something very dynamic. And anti-Gypsyism is not dynamic in that it adapts itself, but it is stereotypical. That's uh, why it is anti-Gypsyism. So, so, uh, so I, I think there is a, there is a common thread uh, which is relevant to for discussing also uh, other 
areas, which obviously also happens. We have uh, a, a exchange among researchers. Uh, uh, we, we had uh, uh, last year a project called uh, Chachipen, uh, uh, where you actually were also part, uh, talking about transitional justice, comparing contexts and methods. Uh, we had Sweden and Germany on the one end, uh, and we had uh, uh, Romania and, and Spain on the other, that it has, uh, to what extent can we exchange this? And in order to do that, I think it's necessary to have this uh, wide um, uh, overview. So I have. We will get back to that more in detail. Uh, I hope in 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 the talk. But uh, so this is why I uh, I don't just do one case study because uh, so I I am I have my focus, my perspective. I cannot escape that. But I discuss global perspectives. Very good. What kind of materials did you use while you prepared your book on Romani liberation? Well, uh, let me put it like this. The bulk of knowledge, because that was very much gathered by the Rome archive team, where I was part of, of that collective, that was never systematically analyzed in that project. So that was my first aim. That was my my starting point, all this material. Uh, with the tools of uh, grounded theory um, to see where are the patterns and coincidences in this uh, whole material and discourse analysis, what kind of, uh, what reoccurs in different contexts. Uh, mm, and then, and then I saw what kind of um, analytical questions do I? How can I systemize this? How can I sort of sketch out some narrative or something? And then I saw where there were gaps in the geographies and contexts I manage. Uh, I was adding new desk research to this, and so I aimed at building. Firstly, a grounded, coherent narrative, which is in a way global, um, um, which I do in the beginning of the book. And by doing this, I, I identified also which analytical tools I find most relevant for doing this as a historian. So that is what I discussed in the other chapters. It's about epistemology, the conditions of knowledge production, uh, the hegemony of uh, gypsy lorism, as we talked about, or uh, in, in another way, word, uh, academic anti-gypsyism, you might also call it, um, which I analyze through critical historiography uh, methods. And since I am a historian of uh, collective memory, I applied also this concept of historical justice, which we also mentioned. And this is specifically important to my book, This Historical Justice, because this uh, I show that this has been and an is an arena for challenging the role of Romas in society, confronting the past as a driver of social change. It is very evident in Germany, especially, but also in in in, in some Nordic context. And in this, I was 
I was interested in relating Roma experiences from different historic and geographic contexts to each other. So how come that uh, in Sweden and Finland, the Romas uh, went on the streets in the 60s, whereas in Germany it happened more in the 80s and uh, you know, similar things, but in different, yeah, like this. The book is divided into two main parts. The first part provides a historical perspective, as you anticipated, whereas the second part talks about the Swedish experience. Let's walk our listeners through the first part. Talk about each chapter and what uh, uh, summarizes its main idea. Hmm. Okay. Uh in in the first uh, opening part, um, it's uh, which I call the long road to liberation. I offer a concise international historical narrative in less than fifty pages, and that's important to me. It should be able to read on a long train ride. You have this. Uh, uh, it shows that it by no means has been a one-way road. This is absolutely not what I'm saying. And also, we are by no means by the end of that history. It is a focus on Roma agency. The second chapter is more thematic and analytical. Here I introduce the concept of historical justice, which, as I said, is a key for understanding the connection between historical injustice, collective memory, and the anti-gypsyism which we have still around us, and connecting all of this to Romani activism. Uh, This relates uh, uh, very well to to this uh, German philosopher uh, Theodor Adorno, uh, that it is, uh, and this explains why it is important and why it's so powerful for for uh, giving energy into uh, civil rights movements. Uh, the third chapter is perhaps the most important, uh, in a way, in the book. Uh, it's called "Decolonizing Romani Studies," and it critically discusses the role of um, this influential British. American Academic Association, Gypsy Law Society, which was founded uh, in Victorian England in in the 19th century, Um, but still is very much around and very dominant in in, in scholarship, and how this has been uh, uh, crucial for establishing and defending this Orientalist paradigm of the field. So, uh, what I did was then to, by means of a critical historiography, uh, I tried to point out tendencies in in scholarly and non-scholarly uh, literature in the in the field. Uh, that was the one part. The other part was that uh, I was also <clears throat> bringing this in conversation with some previously unpublished documents of the Gypsy Law Society of, uh, 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 of the recent decades. Uh, 
so where it was, uh, the, it evolved the discussion uh, whether uh, uh, this gypsy law society should uh, uh, feel any responsibility for the racism it has uh, produced, and 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 they refuted uh, this, <clears throat> uh, of course, which. I sketch out why that is problematic. Um, so, through this, I, I, I position the, this so-called critical turn, the emergence of uh, of Romani scholarship, uh, but also of uh, uh, Romani authors. How, how this sort of change uh, the scene. Um, and I also offer a detailed theoretical discussion on how to understand different dimensions of anti-gypsism. And the concluding parts, they return to my initial questions, such as um, what are the main obstacles for Romani liberation and what would be the conditions for progress? Uh, which was actually also the title of my first book in 2013 in Swedish, where that was the subtitle there. So what are the obstacles and and what are the conditions for progress? Uh, And in this, I also use Sweden as a detailed case study. To put it short, uh, we cannot understand Romani history without understanding anti-Gypsyism. And secondly, nationalism has always been the worst political climate for Roma. And that the openings, the cracks in this, uh, in this wall, they have occurred firstly in uh, historical occasions where the interests of Roma have coincided with the interests of larger society. And this is what... Uh, 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 theorists uh, Chang and Chang have called, uh, for example, have called interest convergence. And the second explanation I, I, I offer is it also has occurred in situations where expectations, growing expectations, have become frustrated, uh, such as uh, um, as during the rise of the Swedish Roma rights movements in the 1960s, where a lot of promises were were, were set up by society uh, politics, and nothing happened, uh, nothing improved, or it improved, but too slowly. So um, when things start to get a bit better, you want them to be much better, and at least that the promises are kept, yeah? And this is something uh, uh, which I think is uh, it is uh, it is uh, relevant uh, for many other contexts as well. Why do people make revolutions? Um, so uh, yeah, that, that's about it. And maybe to mention a name which is very familiar here, but in other countries not. Uh, 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 this Swedish uh, Roma rights movement in the sixties was. Uh, also became an icon uh, in in the famous Romani writer, Katarina Taikon. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 
This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. So you told us uh, about uh, the information you included in your book, but how is the experience of the Roma, not only in Sweden, in uh, the other Nordic countries, Norway, Finland, Denmark? Uh, and and how uh, are the numbers similar of the Romani communities uh, in these countries, similar to Sweden, I mean? Give us a broad idea for listeners who don't know anything about yeah. the subject. Don't make, don't quote me on the numbers here, but if I said like uh, approximately 100,000 in Sweden, uh, uh, maybe 10,000 in Finland, uh, uh, Norway, and uh, Denmark even less. Um, so it, it is actually very different in, the, in these uh, Nordic countries. And for two reasons, uh, uh, the situation. The first reason is, of course, the positions of the countries during the Second World War. Norway was occupied by Nazi Germany. Finland pa- was partly allied with Nazi Germany. And Sweden, as the pretended neutral, who, as we know for a long time, was on best terms with Nazi Germany in general. And in this area was also, it's important to say, a main producer of biological racism. Uh, the the world's first institute for racial biology in Uppsala, um, which was uh, frequently visited by, by German uh, scholars, of course. Mm, uh, but also that Sweden during... Um, during the war, uh, uh, closed the borders explicitly against Roma uh, refugees. Um, so th- these are some contexts. Uh, and the second context is what we also mentioned before. It has to do with the composition of the Romani communities, which is very, very different in, in the Nordic countries. On the one hand, in Finland, there is almost only one Roma group, uh, the Kale. On the other hand, we have Norway, where the largest Romani group, uh, the Romani, uh, the, the Norwegian travelers, is not even defined as Roma officially, um, and also don't self-define as Roma, but it it is Romani group. Uh, and then um, uh, in Norway, we also have a very small and very narrowly defined group of Norwegian Roma. But this is something political. There are also other Roma from from the Balkans who are not included. But anyway, we have very different... uh, uh, So in the middle, we have Sweden, which has the largest and also most diverse Roma community. And Denmark, then, is a very special case, which I actually don't hardly discuss in my book. But um, because it refuses to recognize Roma as a national minority at all. And this is unusual uh, in Europe. Um, Despite the historical and present-day existence of this minority in Denmark, there is evidence that they should be acknowledged, but uh, Denmark simply doesn't do it. And it's also interesting to see that um, Denmark has the 
the most anti-gypsy attitudes in attitude service of all uh, uh, Nordic countries. So maybe it's a coincidence, but uh, that that's the case. So so it is it is different. So, um, um, <laughs> just to clarify, is the Nordic experience different from the rest of the continent? You already touched on this uh, question, but uh, do you want uh, to add anything else? Uh, um, is is it is it my impression that uh, correct that uh, the um, uh, Romani groups in um, Scandinavia? are usually rooted in Eastern European uh, Romani who took refuge uh, in Scandinavia at uh, some point in time, or is this uh, not true? Uh, well, as I said, it has a very, uh, uh, it, it's very heterogeneous uh, group. Uh, uh, there is the, the, the perhaps largest group within the Roma collective. It's uh, the, the Romani, uh, Swedish travelers, some would say, they themselves call the Resander. Uh, that's a very large group, and they, they are uh, established in Sweden for uh, centuries, uh, dated bis- uh, until uh, the 16th century. So that's something different. And then, of course, uh, since Sweden and Finland has a common history, it was uh, one country for a while, and uh, there also uh, uh, has always been uh, Finnish Roma in Sweden, obviously. Um, uh, but then uh, you're in a way right there that uh, um, since the 1990s, the wars in uh, Yugoslavia, um, a lot of refugees, uh, Roma refugees, have come to Sweden. And uh, uh, also, uh, a large majority of them are Muslims. Um, and uh, uh, it should also be said that uh, uh, the, the many of these, um, the second generation from this, they have been very, very successful, uh, uh, study at universities and everything. And um, yeah, so that's that, that's one thing. But but the other is Nordic experience so different from the rest of the con- continent? Well, we uh, often think that. And you, and you, uh, foreign academics, you tend to you to to make fun of us uh, and uh, Nordic Nordic exceptionalism and what this does to our self perception. Uh, we are always so special, more moral than everybody else, and more modern and uh, equal and everything. And well, in fact, I think that there is something special, and I think that has to do with the homogenous self-image, which was in fact very destructive then, but also with a total historical dominance of uh, Protestant churches. And with the dominance of social democratic welfare ideology, it's a very secular country. Uh, and perhaps also we could add that there is an outspoken consensus culture. Consensus culture. We don't argue openly about things in Sweden. So there are some uh, some things I would say is uh, special or. Hmm. Well, I think in political science, at least, many political scientists in North America, (coughs) excuse me, would argue that Scandinavia is one of the most democratic 
um, regions of Europe. So it has this benefit of having um, implemented uh, democratic institutions and democratic norms for many more decades than, for example, Eastern Europe or a country like um, like Greece uh, that uh, was rocked by the colonel's uh, dictatorship. So in this in this respect, some North American political scientists would argue that Scandinavia is well ahead um, some other regions of Europe, and it can its experience in protecting minorities um, or failing to protect minorities, yeah, is like a lesson that could be offered to to newer democracies in uh, Central and Eastern Europe, for example, you know. Mm, Yeah, that's an observation, which... uh... Which is, uh, yeah, I was actually thinking about, uh, I mean, uh, let, let's say, because that's a, that's a kind of a, a thing which uh, people always ask me, uh, which country at which time was uh, the best for Roma to live in uh, or something like that. And, and this is a bit related to this. I And it, it's, of course, uh, but it's, uh, let's put it as a, as a mind game. Uh, because this is a hard question and you cannot generalize, but with some reservations, as I said, Yugoslavia during Titoism in the 1970s is very, very interesting. Uh, uh, And as I said, there is something about it that uh, 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 the second generation uh, or or, or the children of the refugees who came from the Balkans in the 90s, that they are so often so successful. There's something, that's an indication. So that talking about the Nordic, and yes, um, it has a good setting for doing something uh, <clears throat> positive here. Uh, and uh, in a way, Germany as well, but Germany has also a terrible, the most terrible cost of, of every country. Um, but... Um, but I think, in especially in 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 the north, there is a pretty clear-cut political concept of uh, how to create a, a you know a, a society which uh, which respects everybody, um, uh, and it has good intentions and a social system with traditions of uh, human rights and material equality. Also, uh, rich. Uh, those are rich countries, so we can afford uh, this. We could afford, I would say. So, and I think it's no coincidence that Sweden and Germany. I mean, Germany for maybe for different reasons, but those were the two first to have expert commissions on anti-Gypsyism. And uh, at times, of course, we can question the good intentions. Uh, um, and they are maybe right now also a bit under attack uh, uh, because the right-wing populism is advancing as everywhere, also here. So it's it's no more as uh, we are talking about, uh, you know, a longer perspective. And there it's justified to put it like that. Uh but still, I would not say that everything is gone just because we have a right-wing populist backlash now, because there is uh, there are still uh, <clears throat> useful and good legal texts to refer to, and there are discourses and knowledge uh, which people can use and fight for. 
So it's uh, it's some sort of um, uh, almost a hegemony of of, of this kind of uh, uh, yeah civil rights thinking in a way. Yeah. So that's maybe that's a, that was a long answer to to that uh, question. No, that was that was very interesting and a very very nice um, um, addition to your argument. The book includes a foreword uh, signed by Nicoletta Bitu and afterwards written by Soraya Post and uh, Hans Kaldarash. Why was it important for you to include their testimonials, their texts? Hmm. (laughs) Well, first of all, uh, those three persons uh, who are all Roma, actually, they have been my mentors for many years in this. but also they contribute with perspectives and experiences which I simply don't have uh, uh, and cannot have. So I was extremely happy that they wanted to write. Um, and they write a bit about uh, different things because of their roles. Soraya Post, uh, she was in European Parliament and she was certainly a driver for uh, the European recognition of anti-Gypsyism and and uh, uh, for uh, uh, this kind of uh, processes. So she writes, uh, maybe not very optimistic, but she writes about uh, uh, what still was done and could be done at the Europe, uh, political level. Hans Calderas, he, is, uh, uh, he writes about uh, 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 the people who are most disrespected among Roma when we're talking about Swedish uh, societies, uh, and, and those are uh, some people who, because of their racialized poverty and racism in Romania, uh, go to Scandinavian countries, sit on the street with a paper cup, and 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 and, and beg for help. And he uh, uh, he uh, uh, makes us understand. And because he talks to those uh, persons, and uh, and uh, so so that's his perspective, and then he relates this to his own childhood, because he was one of the generations, the one maybe one of the last of the generations of Swedish Roma who had to live in tents in Sweden, who were completely excluded from society. So he relates this. Uh, the, the 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 terrible con- conditions when it's uh, snowing you have to sleep outside uh, the fear for the police the fear for racist attacks so he writes about that level from a very personal perspective and nicoletta b2 she she writes about from the perspective of being a a major very important uh, romani feminist intellectual who has uh, who has uh, uh, sort of uh, seen the different waves of Romani activisms and and the progress and the uh, and the, the backlashes and and this, but she has a very hopeful uh, forward. So I'm very happy uh, to to have that there. Uh, so so that gives hope, and that was my intention with the whole book. So thank you, Nicoletta B2. <laughs> If you were to change anything to the book, what would that be? Would you delete a chapter? Would you add some information? Would you would you uh, add new cases or um, new historical perspectives? What would you uh, would it be? 
Well, I, I'm not the kind of person who, who, who does things like that. And also my, 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 uh, uh, my answer is no, I wouldn't really uh, change anything. Um, of course, the book doesn't cover all countries and all aspects, and it doesn't provide a new grand theory of uh, social mobilization. That was not my aim. So still, no, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't really uh, change. My point was, as I said, to provide an accessible book, and I already had quite a few comments that they they appreciate this and read it as such, and I'm happy to do that. And I wanted also to offer a more or less coherent narrative. This is the trajectory of Roman liberation. You can, of course, uh, tell it in other ways, but this is one way of telling it, and there are not so many. Uh, so, And also I wanted to offer some tools for critically dealing with Romani history and anti-Gypsyism, if you want to go deeper into it. So it's like a book with different layers. You can read it like, uh, uh, like more accessible... Uh, to have a sort of an idea about this, but you can also go deep into it and use it for going deeper into things. So, so I mean, uh, the, it's an invitation for other researchers to work out the many and wide gaps, and I hope that many of these historians will be Roma. Um, and I can testify, having read the book, that it's a very engaging uh, uh, reading, uh, full of uh, information, full of uh, academic perspectives, but also uh, full of uh, factual um, <clears throat> details that are um, uh, that could be seen as a starting point for uh, further conversations on uh, Roma liberations, not only in uh, northern uh, countries, but also uh, uh, in other parts of the world. Is there, based on your experience or based on all the information you collected to date, is there a country that could be seen as a model in terms of the treatment of the Roma people? Yeah, I think uh, we were, in a way, uh, we were into that question. And I think really, I mean, there are different, uh, I talk about early periods of emancipation. And uh, one of the earliest uh, periods is in, in the Ottoman Empire. In some parts of it, where uh, already in the 13th century, uh, Romani were settled and uh, asked for uh, um, uh, artisans and, uh, you know, um, uh, so comparatively, uh, that was certainly better off there than in Northern Europe, where it was uh, severe persecution at the time, and of course better off than in uh, in uh, the uh, the Ottoman vassal states of uh, Wallachia and my, so that was something. And then we have uh, um, the emancipation from Slavery. that did not turn out very well in Romania, I must say. Uh, uh, we can get back to that. In the early Soviet Union is also one uh, interesting uh, part of the minority politics uh, where um, where uh, uh, self-organizing and um, uh, schools and, uh, and alphabet, uh, Romanes alphabet was promoted very much. It was then stopped, of course. And then again, as I said, uh, Titoism during the 70s. That's very... And yeah, going back to the question... 
I should maybe have expanded on a chapter or a, maybe at least a, a small, a little more about that uh, on, on what was about it, because it's, it's not so one-sided, but uh, there is something interesting about that. Um, so, so we yeah. have Jan, we have so many uh, positive uh, examples uh, or you know mo- what I call models of um, um, <clears throat> in terms of the treatment of the Roma people. But what is the main obstacle for Romani liberation um, in in the other countries at the other? Uh, in the other time periods, um, how can these obstacles be overcome? Hmm. Well, I, I think, I mean, one interesting observation is that uh, uh, Yugoslavia and uh, the early Soviet Union, those were the only two communist uh, countries which were not based on a nationalism in that sense. They were, per definition, multi. This is why and only the only reason why this kind of interesting, partly uh, emancipation projects could happen there. So, well, nationalism has never been good for Romani liberation. We see this very clearly at the end of the Ottoman Empire. It splitted and then. Uh, anti-gypsies increased. Everybody was picking team and nobody wanted to have the Roma on the team. Um, and, uh, and also again in the 90s in, in Yugoslavia, Kosovo, nationalism is the most terrible option. But uh, And again, we see also in this uh, right-wing populism, nationalism is of course a component of that. And but within this, as an overall problem, uh, as uh, Soraya Post has uh, written in her reports for the European problem, the root cause for discrimination, exclusion, prejudice, and violence against Roma is anti-Gypsyism. So this is it. And how can it be overcome? Well, a first step is to change this, is to recognize it as a problem. A second step is to establish a political will. But Political will is, of course, a highly unstable factor. So I again would quote Ian Hancock and say, education is the passport to freedom. Because the more high educated Roma we get, the more uh, the, 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 the conversation will change. That's well said. <clears throat> Now, um, I see that you are speaking with so much passion uh, about uh, about uh, Roma and Romani liberation, uh, and I uh, uh, just guess that uh, uh, you will continue somehow uh, to study these uh, issues. What is your current project? And it is related somehow to your work done uh, to date. Uh, yes, uh, definitely. Um... I am uh, right now, since a year, uh, involved in a historical project called Memorobia, which analyzes the legacy of 500 years of Roma enslavement in Wallachia and Moldova, which is now part of Romania. 
and how this memory is being suppressed in today's Romania, because it's astonishing and appalling to which degree this is not talked about and educated about. So why is this? That's uh, my research question there. And my specific task is to analyze the discourses of the Orthodox Church and in academia. So, uh, and uh, we were there on a field study with a team, and uh, since I am the only uh, white male person uh, with a beard, um, I had uh, the, the, uh, the, the task to interview um, uh, uh, priests and other Orthodox church people. And uh, uh, those, uh, well, uh, I, I cannot uh, talk about the results, but I can just say so much that uh, it was... Very interesting, uh, uh, partly uh, surprising, partly shocking. Um, very, uh, very uh, interesting material. Very. Uh, um, uh, so I think this study, together with the other researchers, which are uh, Magda Matake from Harvard, Sulvo Lauritsen uh, from MF, uh, and Delia Grigora from uh, from Bucharest University, uh, it is a very important and exciting project. And then uh, the other main part of my work, I am teaching a lot, too much, I would say. Um, uh, my, my work there is to sort of consolidate the academic spaces for critical Romani studies. And my specific interest is to um, promote upcoming Romani scholars uh, I have an international uh, colloquium for a PhD candidates uh, in critical Romani studies um, online, so everybody's welcome to join uh, or apply for it. Um, uh, so in the true sense of critical theory, I don't just want to describe the world, but uh, to do something about the conditions for knowledge production in this field. And I, uh, um, I wish you all the best in uh, in your future uh, uh, studies and your future activities. Our guest today at New Books Network was Dr. Jan Selling, the author of uh, Romani Liberation, a Northern Perspective on Emancipation, uh, Struggles and Progress, a book published with uh, Central European University Press in 2022. Thank you. And hope we'll talk again soon about your projects. Goodbye.